0: Well, good morning, family. Would you join me in prayer as we uh, come to the Word of God this morning? Father, our hearts are already full as we have sung together and worshipped together, as we have shared together from Your Word, as we've heard what You have been doing through one of the ministries that we are blessed to partner with. We've been filled this morning. We, we ask, Lord, and, and trust that You have been honored through the words of our lips and the thoughts of our heart. As we've sung these praises, even as we have reminded ourselves and sung to one another and sung to You, as we sing of Your great power, as we sing of the wonders of Your might, the wonders of Your care, we're comforted as we remember that uh, we are, as we just sang, we are always in your care no matter where we are. Thank you, Father, for your great love and grace and care toward us. Father, we, um, we just ask in these moments as we open your Word that you would meet with us, that you would instruct and teach us through your Word. But more than that, Father, we desire that this not be some intellectual exercise where we gain some knowledge. We desire for Your Word to transform us, to reshape us, remake us. That in all things, and especially in us, that You might be glorified. So Father, guide our study in Your Word this morning. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter 1. Many of you know that uh, Vince Lombardi was the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers later on of the Washington Redskins, considered by many to be one of the greatest football coaches of all time. It's said, I don't know because I wasn't there, but I've read and heard that he began the first day of training camp every year in the very same way he would gather the the new team which was generally full of seasoned veteran players and then he would coach lombardi would address them with these words gentlemen this is a football and then he proceeded to explain to these guys most of whom had grown up since Pee Wee League playing football, no matter how many years they had been in the NFL, he proceeded to take them through the basics of the game, starting with this is a football. See, he understood the value of the basics, the fundamentals, The necessity of a solid foundation in the fundamentals. And some might have thought he was just trivial, wasting time, but very few could argue with his results. As again, one of the greatest coaches of all time. Today, this morning, we begin a new message series. One that's going to take us all the way through the fall and right up till Christmas. As we go back to the basics as we come here to Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and see what they have to say for us today. As we begin, I want to go through a couple of reasons why these chapters of Genesis, I believe, are vital. They are essential studies for us as the church. And I realize that for some of you, uh, If you've been around this, this church for about a decade, you will have heard this before because we went through these chapters about a decade ago. But I think they're so vital that it'd do good to have a refresher because I have a feeling some of your memory isn't so good. But the rea- reality is the majority of you probably weren't around ten years ago, or if you were, you might have been quite young. It's good for us to come back here and look at the basics, but again, two reasons why I think that these, these chapters are essential for us to study. The first reason is this, that these chapters are under constant attack. If you want to be labeled as a kook, if you want people to call you a religious nutcase, a wacko, some brainless simpleton, who has no reasoning skills, just get into a crowd of ordinary people and then mention, you know, I believe the Genesis account of creation. And I can almost guarantee that some folks are going to have something to say that won't be necessarily complimentary. A few months ago, this renowned Yale University professor David Hillel Glerntner, okay? He publicly renounced his belief in Darwin's theories of evolution. He is still far from being a biblical creationist, but it was through his studies, as he examined mathematical statistics and probabilities, as he studied the workings of mutations, As he examined and looked carefully at the fossil record, what he realized was that all of these things debunk evolution rather than support it. And so he chose to say, I can't believe that anymore. He goes on to say that in his writings this summer, he says that evolution goes beyond science. And it serves as a replacement religion, the basis of the world view of evolutionists. Therefore, he says, anyone who disagrees with them faces great hostility. In fact, he wrote, you take your life in your hands to challenge it intellectually. They will destroy you. He's learned by experience. The reality is, though, the attacks from the educational and scientific community at large are not new. We've experienced it over quite a while, and especially in the last 50 years. But the greater challenge to these passages of Scripture, from my view, doesn't come from outside, unbelievers on the outside, but rather comes from people inside the church, under the umbrella of Christendom. Most of us are aware that over a hundred years ago, the liberal wings of Christianity, they, they abandoned the early chapters of Genesis and just called them, you know, fantasy, mythology, legend, or called them allegory, you know, stories with a point, but the stories aren't really necessarily true. But today, under the under the terms such as theistic evolution, the framework hypothesis, old earth creationism. There are growing numbers of evangelicals who are attempting to rewrite the creation account to accommodate long ages of time and evolutionary concepts. And the reasoning, in essence, is simply because we don't want to appear foolish or ignorant or... Offensive to current modern thought. Part of our aim in this series is to remind us and to encourage us that the Word of God can be trusted. We believe the Bible here at the Chapel of the Lake. Every pastor and every elder and every leader that I am aware of who has ever served here at the Chapel believes these chapters of Genesis along with all of the Scriptures to be the literal, inspired, authoritative, inerrant Word of God. These chapters of Genesis were written, we believe, as history, not as allegory, nor as myth, nor as legend. These opening chapters of Genesis plainly read which any honest scholar will agree that they are intended to be, they clearly and plainly teach that God created the universe, the world, and all the creatures therein in six days, not over millions and billions of years. This has been the near universal teaching of the church for almost 2,000 years. We feel no need to try to reconcile Scripture to line up with the whims of some current scientific thought. Which, by the way, if you haven't noticed, it changes continually. I wonder how many of you are old enough to remember when the concern in science class in school was the next coming ice age. (laughs) It is sure and certain, they said. Now it's global warming. The scientists can't agree on what we're supposed to eat. (laughs) That changes continually. We could go on and on. Science is not something fixed. It is something fluid that changes. The Word of God on the other hand, God says is fixed. And if we believe Him, we must believe that His Word will not change. It will not, as Jesus said, it will not pass away until every bit is fulfilled. We believe this way not because we checked our brains at the door. We believe this way instead because we are indeed rational and thinking people. At its very heart, evolution is a theory that contradicts what every one of us knows instinctively. What it says is that this awesome diversity, this awesome complexity, this amazing beauty in the creation all around us happened by chance and everything came from nothing when all of the creation screams there is design and there is a Creator. Simply take the human eye. The human eye is a perfect interrelated system. The eye has about 40 individual subsystems, including the retina, the pupil, the iris, the cornea, the lens, the optic nerve, and on. The optic nerve by itself contains 1.2 million fibers. The retina has over 120 million photoreceptors to respond to light and then to respond that and transform that into messages that it sends to the brain. The eye captures and delivers and interprets up to 1.5 million pulse messages in a millisecond. It's no wonder that someone once wrote to suppose that the eye with all of its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of lights, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd to the highest degree. Written by Charles Darwin. In his work, The Evolution of the Species, the phenomenal thing was that he went on later in his book to explain how the eye must have evolved because the only other explanation was unacceptable, and that was it was designed and created. By the way, Charles Darwin in his day didn't even understand and comprehend half of the complexity of the physiology and the workings of the eye. Modern ophthalmology has since discovered amazing things, as if what Darwin knew wasn't amazing enough. Why then would he go on to say, well, it had to evolve, because that's the... the, Error at the beginning, the presupposition of naturalism and and of naturalistic science. It's it's saying there must be a natural explanation for something. And so no matter how absurd, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how far-fetched, if we can come up with some kind of scenario that might even possibly be believed, we take that. Over the, the obvious thing, there's a design and a designer. But you see, that's the problem that Professor Glertner had. He looked at it and said, there ain't a chance. <laughs> I'm praying that one day that's going to move where he realizes and comes to know there is a Creator God. His name is Yahweh and He sent His Son Jesus. And he meets him as his savior. See, we believe that there is not a single demonstrable scientific fact which disproves or undermines the truthfulness of God's word and of these chapters here in Genesis that describe the creative work of God. In fact, There is ample evidence that supports the Bible's account of a young earth and of the immediate appearance of all creation. It's obvious and ample if you don't start with an underlying assumption that God cannot and does not and must not exist. There's also a substantial body of information and of evidence that undermines evolutionary theory. Now, all that said, it is not my intention today or through the rest of this series of studies to sit here and argue scientific information and science and, and scientific theories. First of all, we don't have the time to do that here, and the reality is I'm not competent to do that. But if you have questions, if you have Issues about what I've just said, I double dog dare you. Start doing some research. There's a second reason why these chapters I think are so essential for us to study. Not only are they under constant attack, but the truths in these first three chapters of Genesis are foundational. They're foundational. First of all, simply for life, they are key to understanding our world. Many of the struggles and questions, the contemporary issues that confront us today as individuals, as families, as the church, as a society, so many of them find their core answers right here in these crucial chapters of Genesis. Questions that have to do with the purpose and meaning of life. Who am I? Uh, how did I get here? You know, where, am I, where did I come from? Why? Questions about the value of human life. Is human life special? Does it have any intrinsic value greater than that of an animal? Should abortion and euthanasia be real concerns and of interest to us? Questions about marriage and family. What is marriage? Why get married? Why does marriage and family matter? Questions about homosexuality and gender. Questions about pain and suffering and evil. Why does evil exist? Why is suffering here? Where did it come from? All of these things here in these early chapters of Genesis. But besides being key to understanding our world, they are key to understanding the Scripture itself. Several decades ago, I remember encountering a little book, All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. So you remember that? In a sense, we can say that here. All of the major teachings of the Bible find their roots here in Genesis. Genesis many of them in these first three chapters. Pastor Ray Pritchard says it very well. He says Genesis 1-11 through is the seed plot of the entire Bible. What the acorn is to the oak, so this passage is to the rest of the Bible. These are the headwaters of divine revelation. Everything God wants us to know starts right here. If the foundation is flawed and unstable and the entire building may well end up in jeopardy and then when that happens you end up with this <laughs> the leaning tower of Pisa, which they keep working on because if they don't keep working on it it's going to fall over when the foundation isn't stable you're in trouble and so it is with the scripture If we compromise the foundation here in Genesis, we undermine the entire message. Just one example. Because I've heard it said by folks, all we need to do is we just need to to cling to the Gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. That's all we need to cling to and worry about. And and Genesis is just a peripheral thing. Or, Or is it? The reality is, And if we ignore Genesis 1 through 3, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has no meaning. You see, if Adam and Eve didn't actually exist as real people, and if their sin didn't plunge mankind into the curse of sin and death and judgment, then there's no need for Jesus' sacrifice And his resurrection has no real purpose. Thirdly, these truths in Genesis are essential to the trustworthiness of Scripture. See, I say that because if Genesis 1 through 3 is myth, then the Apostle Luke got it wrong, the Apostle Paul got it wrong. The Apostle Peter got it wrong. The Apostle John got it wrong. All of them talk about the people and the events of creation and of Genesis as fact, not as fiction, as history, not as myth. Not only did they get it wrong, Jesus Himself got it wrong. On at least six different occasions, Jesus refers to the early chapters of Genesis as factual history. For instance, Matthew chapter 19, you might remember there, Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, and He goes back to the creation account, back to Genesis 2, to defend His teaching on marriage and divorce. He says, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Just three things I want us to note in that one little sentence that Jesus affirms of Genesis chapter two. First, he affirms that the them he's talking about they, they are created that God created were Adam and Eve. He affirms that Adam and Eve were real people. Not only were they real people, but they were secondly, they were specially created by God. And thirdly, he says, He was in the beginning. That's significant because Adam and Eve didn't just appear on the scene after millions of years of evolution and now they finally evolved and God says, okay, now they're, they're human. <laughs> but God created them specially in the beginning. as God was creating the world on the sixth day God created Adam and Eve. You see, if the apostles and Jesus are wrong, then don't just throw out Genesis 1-3. through 3, Throw out the whole book. If Genesis is not trustworthy about our past, then the reality is that Revelation, the last book, Revelation cannot be trusted with our future. We'll take some time in the the last message in the series, and we're going to look at Genesis 1 through 3, and we're going to look at Revelation 19 through 22, and what you will discover is that the parallels between them are astounding. God, the author of the book, is a great writer. Despite the fact that it was written over so many centuries with so many different authors in different languages, whatever, there's a theme that runs all through it because God is authoring the book. And the parallels between Genesis and Revelation are so striking that what we realize is if Genesis 1 through 3 cannot be trusted, neither can Revelation 19 through 22. And if that can't be trusted, then the reality is we have no hope throw it all away, and let's go find something else to do with our time on Sunday. But you see, the reality is we believe it is true. And with good reason. With that long introduction, we're finally ready for the sermon. (laughs) Good news. We're just going to look at one verse. I'm just going to point out three quick points. And give two implications. Genesis one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One brief little verse. Some have called it the most important verse in all the Bible. There are so many important verses in the Bible. I don't know that I can say this is the most important, but I can say this. It's an important verse. And it packs a punch. There's so much here, but just three things very quickly I want us to note. The first is, it tells us there was a beginning. In the beginning. That, by the way, is where the name of this book comes from. In the beginning is the word Genesis. The book of beginnings. But this informs us that matter is not eternal. There have been those who thought it was. Matter is not eternal. The universe is not eternal. There are those who think it is. What this tells us is that there was a time that everything we see and everything that we touch did not exist. None of it has been here forever. Only God is eternal. Existing beyond the pale of space, matter, And time. He created everything in this physical universe. It all finds its origin right here. There was a beginning. Secondly, we need to understand that it says, in the beginning, God. God is the central character, not us. Most of us are rather proud and self-centered and we have a tendency to insert ourselves in the center of everything. (laughs) We tend to think that the whole universe revolves around us. No, it does not. It revolves around God. (laughs) He is the virtual, as it were, center of everything. This is His story. Even while this book begins here and it outlines and gives us human history and the end of it gives us future and all the way through, it's our story. It's our story, but it's our story because it's His story. He's the One who has written it. He is the One who made us. He is not introduced nor defined. He simply appears here on the page. In the beginning, God. and He's introduced as the central character. And we learn about Him. We learn about His nature. And character through his actions and through his words just a few things i'll just hit that that we learn about him in these in these first chapter or so he is eternal as i said he precedes matter and time and space because he creates it all he is the creator the gods that other people worship are made of wood and stone Or they are things in nature like the sun or the moon, but none of those are God's at all because they are created by Him. He is powerful. The very first name that we have for God here in the Hebrew is is Elohim. Literally, it means the strong and mighty ones. It's the plural of El, which means God Almighty. It's the name that's used for God all through chapter 1 here and into the first few verses of chapter 2. He's powerful, but there's also along with that mystery because Elohim, as I said, is plural. It's a plural name for God, and yet it's used singularly, which is odd. And yet this one who is whose name is plural, but who is singular, then says, "Let us make man in our image." And we get confused, and there's mystery here. But what we discover is that it's in seed form. Later, as scripture. Moves along, what we discover is there is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who is one God, and yet three in one. And it makes our mind hurt. He is not only mystery, though, he is personal. God is not an it, he is not a force, he is a he. And he sees, and he speaks, and he thinks, and he feels, and he acts, and he creates. And we discover, by the way, that He created us in His image so that we are also personal. We also see and think and feel and speak and act, even create. We are not alone in, this, in an impersonal cosmos. Carl Sagan used to say we are. He was wrong. He knows better now. There's a God who made us, a God who cares for His creation. He's not only personal, though, He is relational. He is the God who has revealed Himself to us and relates to us and with us. Beginning in the fourth verse of chapter 2, as God begins to give the history of man, He begins using the name Yahweh or Jehovah. It's in your English translation in all capitals. And it says, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh means the great I Am it is the personal name that He gives to Himself as He relates to us. He is the great I Am, God Almighty. We could go on. There's so much more. We can see that He is purposeful. He is ordered. He is perfect. He is good. And much more here in these chapters. We learn, thirdly, that God created everything from nothing. The theological term is ex nihilo. Hebrews chapter 11.1 1 tells us that the things that were made were made from things unseen, literally things not in existence. You and I build things, we make things because we are made in the image of God. We also make things, but we do it with things that are already raw materials that already exist. God created everything from nothing. These three truths there was a beginning that God is the central character and he created everything from nothing it gives at least two implications that I want to point out this morning. The first is this. God is sovereign. As the all-powerful creator, God is sovereign over all creation. Sovereign because he is bigger than creation. He he is more powerful than creation. But also sovereign because he has the rights of ownership as creator. Just as you do, I can pretty well guarantee when you invest yourself in making something, at the end of it, when you're done, you go, it's mine. Right? When we make something, we take the right of creator. I built that, I made that, it's mine. Why then do we question whether God has the right to everything, including us? If He made us, He has ownership. God is sovereign because He is powerful. God is sovereign because He is the Creator. And God is sovereign because He sustains everything. The only reason we have breath in our lungs this very moment and blood cursing through our veins, the only reason we will have food to eat sometime, whenever the pastor gets done, is because God provides it. God is sovereign. The second implication then is that true wisdom begins with honoring Him. So I saw Psalm 111, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The opposite of that is also true. Psalm 14.1 says, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Last year, I was at a gathering, little picnic with a bunch of my neighbors, average people. I don't think many, if any of them, are really believers in Christ. I was interested as I was listening on the conversation that after a while, they we're coming to this this conclusion and actually said the world has gone mad. They were talking about all the arrogance and the hatred and the strife and the violence and the immorality and gender confusion and senseless mass slayings and on and on and they were going on and I remember thinking they should read the Bible. Romans 1 describes the progression of man who denies his Creator. He looks at the world around him which screams out, there's a designer, there's a Creator, and man goes, nah, I don't think so. And refuses to honor God as God. And instead, Romans 1 goes on, he worships the creation. Whether it's with little stone images or whether it's saying, The creation made itself. The creation is God. And he claims in all of that to be exceptionally wise. And instead he has become a fool. And what follows as Romans 1 continues is an immoral, sinful, degrading mess. A better description couldn't be written of our world today. Than what Paul says right there. When my neighbors looked around, when we look around, when we see immorality, when we see homosexual homosexuality and gender confusion and hatred and violence and mass shootings and arrogance and all the stuff, please understand: those aren't the problems in our society. Those aren't the problems. What Romans says is those are the symptoms. The problem, you see, in our culture is the same one that Paul says in Romans 8 they have denied the Creator. The reality is that you and I can't do much to change our culture. The question, though, comes down to you and to me personally. Are you rebelling against the Creator? Or are you trusting Him? Trusting Him as your God, as your Savior? Are you owning Him as Lord, worshiping Him, following Him? The only difference, by the way, between a declared atheist and someone who claims to believe in God, in His Word, in Jesus Christ, but who lives as though He doesn't matter, the only real difference potentially is semantics. I call it practical atheism. And Unfortunately, there's a lot of folks who name the name of Christ who live that way. Father, tons of stuff here boggles the mind how much in just one little verse there is for us to see. How much more in all of these chapters that we need to to look at and to see what it has to say to us. Father, if there are any who need to first come to know You as God, as their Savior to understand Your great love for them, Your provision in Christ, I pray that they wouldn't let a day go by without finding out what it is to know You as their God, not just as their God, as their Father, to have relationship with You. But then, Father, for the rest of us, comes down to the practicalities. Are we living out what we believe? For we are here to be a light to the rest of the world to introduce them to You. And how can we do that if we do not follow you ourselves? So, Father, may it be the desire of our heart to live for you in all we say, all we do, that you might be reflected in all that we are. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.